Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in African-American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am your host, Amanda Joyce Hall. Today, in my interview with Dr. Elizabeth Hinton, we discuss her new book entitled America on Fire, The Untold History of Police Violence and Black Rebellions Since the 1960s. The title is currently out with Live Right Press, and at present, Dr. Elizabeth Hinton is an associate professor in the Department of History and the Department of African American Studies at Yale, with a secondary appointment as professor of law at Yale Law School. In America on Fire, Hinton asserts the significance of Black rebellions in post-civil rights America, arguing that the riots were indeed rebellions or political acts in response to the failures and unfulfilled promises of the civil rights period. She investigates an overlooked compendium of Black uprisings emanating from poor and working class Black neighborhoods, towns, and cities, often sparked by police terror between 1964 and 1972. In refuting the racist pathologies that community violence has been assigned by commissions, politicians, liberals, and conservatives alike, Hinton presents a redefinition through the analytic of rebellion that should change the way we understand resistance to anti-Black racism and policing today. We will discuss this and more in our interview. Dr. Hinton, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Amanda. I'm really excited to talk to you about the book. Yeah, I can't wait. With that, let's jump into our first question. Can you tell us about yourself and your journey to history, uh, your journey to African-American studies, um, and perhaps how you approach the work or the mandate of Black studies today? So I think, I mean, especially as a Black person in America, I mean, history and wanting to know and understand our history and where I came from and the sacrifices that the ancestors made have always just been a part of who I am. I used to listen when I was younger, to stories that my grandparents, Big Papa and Big Mama, um, would tell about the Jim Crow South and about, um, you know, why they came to Saginaw, Michigan um, in the 1940s, like so many others as part of the, the Great Migration and the, the white terrorist, uh, terrorism that they faced um, in Columbus, Georgia, um, that pushed them to go. And I was just always really fascinated by that. Um, and then, you know, I'm a old millennial. I was born in 1983 and coming of age in the eighties and nineties, kind of at the height of the war on drugs. And as mass incarceration was really taking off, just had a profound impact on my childhood, especially seeing the ways in which drug abuse and criminalization and incarceration played out within my own family. Um, and it wasn't until, so as an undergraduate, you know, I was really, and even, you know, in high school, I was just always really interested in black history, like understanding slavery, understanding the black power movement. And 
uh, as an undergraduate, I, uh, I majored in, or my concentration was in, uh, it was called basically like the, it, it was a focus on, it was American studies with a focus on the experience of people of African descent in the Western hemisphere. And, um, you know, this was, it was just always where my, my interests lied um, and, and trying to understand to the kind of enduring inequality in the 20th century U.S. Um, and, but it wasn't until graduate school when I started visiting family members in prison. Um, so this was in the, the mid 2000s. I mean, I think, you know, as as passionate as I was about the the kind of rise of policing and especially incarceration, um, that I witnessed through my childhood, I still like so many of us, I think, especially in that period felt a lot of shame, um, about my family who was in prison. Um, and it wasn't until I was in graduate school that I started actually visiting people, um, first in, uh, at high desert state prison in Susanville, California. And when I walked into the visiting room, just seeing just generations of mostly black and brown men, uh, you know, they're interacting with their kids, undergoing the process of, and myself undergoing the process of criminalization that happens when you go to visit someone in prison. It was just, um, it was just, it was really maddening and, um, and upsetting and also somewhat puzzling to me because this was happening at a time when mass incarceration wasn't a buzzword. You know, this was in 2005, so well before Michelle Alexander's book had come out. And I really wanted to, you know, then as a graduate student at Columbia with all the resources and privileges at my disposal, I just felt like, you know, the best thing for me to do with my work and my research skills would be to try to understand how we got, how we got here. Um, So in many ways, you know, the my interest in the history of mass criminalization post-civil rights grew out of my own uh, background and experiences. And then also just the gap, you know, at that time, and that I think still exists in the historiography where, you know, we had this, we had a growing and rich literature on the Black Power movement and civil rights organizations in the, in the sixties and seventies, but we didn't really have a sense of the kind of policies that policies that emerged post-civil rights that, that, um, that in some ways exacerbated inequality or that, uh, that brought about different, different kinds of racial regimes. Um, and, and I, and I saw that I saw, I increasingly began to see uh, neoliberal social policy and the rise of crime control policy beginning in the 60s as a kind of bridge to understand those larger dynamics. Right, which is uh, definitely what your your first book, uh, From the War on Poverty to the War on Crime, um, uh, touches on or is central to it. Um, so how did you come to write uh, this? This is your second book, America on Fire, the untold history of police violence and black rebellions since the 1960s. So in many ways, you know, this book grew out of questions and research that I did in the first book. I mean, one of the things that I that I argue 
in the in the first book is that the war on crime was not in response to as the story had been told um rising crime rates but mm-hmm. uh but you know the threat of black rebellion i mean again at, at the time that i that i started doing the research for the book uh the narrative was that you know that mass incarceration was the was kind of a, or, or crime control policies were an electoral were just an electoral tactic that republicans used to shore up fears among white voters and being tough on crime kind of you know what was was this uh campaign thing and that you know the 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 kind of aggressive policing measures and mass incarceration were really like the product of the evil Reagan administration and so, you know, part of the big intervention in the book is pushing us back to the height of the civil rights movement and mm-hmm. uh, and and liberal social policy in the in the mid 1960s. And in doing so, we see very clearly the ways in which the uh, John, Lyndon Johnson's call for the war on crime and the expansion and militarization of police forces in low-income communities of color was very much in response to the threat of Black rebellion, the threat that the militant um, turn and and kind of the, the collective political violent turn within the mainstream civil rights movement posed to, uh, to American institutions. And so, you know, that was a really important uh, framing of the way that I present the history in the first book. And then, you know, when I was doing the research, I mean, I kept on seeing these like rebellions, these acts of political violence continuing into the 1970s. I mean, one of the assumptions or another assumption um, within the historiography and that I myself am guilty of, uh, of reinforcing in from the war on poverty, the war on crime is that, you know, the, the age of rebellion starts in 1964 in Harlem after a 15-year-old Black high school student is killed by a New York City police officer. And then we kind of get these, you know, like huge uh, galvanizing in many ways moments during the long, hot summer of 1967 in Newark and Detroit. And then a mm-hmm. hundred some cities erupt after Martin Luther King Jr. is assassinated. And that's kind of like the last hurrah of um of this form of violent protest and um and i kept on seeing these rebellions popping up so i knew that something was going on and i was interested in that and the ways in which the nixon administration was was responding to this continued collective violence um Mm -hmm. didn't couldn't really include it in the book and i was at a uh in the summer of 2016 early summer 2016 so shortly after uh, from the war on poverty, the war on crime came out. I was at a barbecue at my dear friend and mentor, Heather Ann Thompson's house in Detroit. And mm-hmm. um, a newly arrived faculty member in the Department of Pol- Political Science named Christian Davenport was there. And Christian was getting ready to do, again, you know, this was 2016. So he was preparing for um, a retrospective that he was planning uh to commemorate the 50 year anniversary of the Detroit rebellion. And and he and I started talking and I said, you know, have you, you know, there were, there were more uh, rebellions in the Detroit area, you know, after that into the seventies, like, have you ever encountered anything like this? And he he said, I happen to have um, this archive in my possession that 
that indeed shows um, mm-hmm. how prevalent this this form of violence was. And he said, you should come to my office and take a look. And Christian had the records of the Lemberg Center for the Study of Violence in his possession, which was um, a research think tank that formed shortly after John F. Kennedy Jr. was assassinated. And the and it was housed at Brandeis. And the Lemberg researchers basically conducted quantitative uh, studies and oral histories, but mostly um, gathered local newspaper clippings from, you know, small and big and midsize and rural um, Mm -hmm. cities across the country documenting all kinds of forms of violence in the United States um, through the 60s and early 70s. So not just Black rebellions, but also um, student protests, the anti-war movement, labor violence. They really were trying to understand, um, you know, the nature of protests and violent conflict in the United States. And and so I went to Christian's office and he presented me with, with these boxes that I just started digging through. And I, and before me was this like treasure trove, was this amazingly rich history that we hadn't seen that like in part because this archive, I mean, and this is like another reason why it's so important to, to, to keep records and to make them available to the public. I mean, this archive had essentially been passed down from one political scientist to another. And I just happened to be in the right place at the right time to be able to access it. I mean, you know, I've asked myself a lot um, if, you know, like this story these stories would have probably been able to be told much earlier had these local newspaper clippings been made public. I mean, now I think it's easier to get into these local sources through things like newspapers.com um, and, and, and ProQuest, but these are newspapers that aren't even on those databases. And wow. yeah, yeah. So, I mean, this, um, and, and even for the book, like I went to newspapers.com too, to like, um, which, which wasn't around, uh, it wasn't as accessible when I was um, doing the research for the first book to like either complement more of these stories or to find other ones. Um, but, but, but this, so it, the, the, the piece of, of the Lemberg archive that just kind of clicked for me was that these, this was the story. These stories were the ways in which Residents and not in big cities, right? I mean, most of the records or the, the newspaper clippings in the archive are from smaller and mid-sized cities that we don't often talk about. But the ways in which Black residents were responding to the expansion and militarization of police during the early years of the war on crime, and so the surprising finding that um, that the 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 newspaper clipping showed, but also that that Christian who who um, as part of his radical information project at the University of Michigan is conducting, which is a quantitative um, study of this violence, shows us that it was actually, you know, the rebellions peaked after the assassination of Martin Luther King. They peaked after the enactment of the Omnibus Crime Control and Safe Streets Act of 1968, which basically implemented many of the policing programs that had been more experimental during the first three years of the war on crime from 65 to 68, um, on a on a on a nationwide scale, and so we see rebellion then happening much more frequently in surprising places like Carver Ranches, Florida, or Albuquerque, New Mexico, or Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, um, Waterloo, Iowa, 
as these smaller departments now that the 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 national crime control program has officially been declared has a has a permanent place within the department of justice we see black communities responding to uh to the expansion of policing and especially the policing of ordinary and everyday activity in much the same way as their counterparts in Harlem and Watts and Detroit mm. work in Washington, D.C. and Baltimore did earlier in the decade. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so and really giving us a, a, a more national story or a more capacious national story. Um, so what can you, let's go back to this treasure trove. <laughs> what can you tell us about the experience of doing the research and writing for this book? I remember like I spoke with you a few years ago about your experience doing the research for your first book. And I remember you saying that time slipped away um, in the in the policy archives, like the hours just went by and you didn't even realize. Um, how, how do you think about... Um, uh, that experience compared to what it was like to go through um, the, this archive? That was a very, so, you know, the research for the first book came from the White House central files of, uh, or the bulk of the primary sources, the, the central files of every presidential administration from Kennedy through Reagan. And um, I think, you know, I mean, and that was at the national, you know, through the national archives and a much more traditional archival research experience where, you know, I went um, relatively slowly. I worked with archivists. I was declassifying documents. I was I was discovering and uncovering a new narrative um, and working with sources. I mean, I guess, you know, similar to um, the Lemberg archive that, that hadn't been used before. Although like some of the Nixon sources I used um, at that time were were completely um, untouched. The Lemberg ones had been, you know, shared among a, a small group of of researchers. I think the the nature of the or the 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 kind of the the kind the types of documents I was using were also very different, right? Because I'm in in the with the federal you know with the federal archives I'm using um, memos and policy reports and notes that people are writing to each other and trying to construct a narrative through that. Um, and then with the Lemberg, I mean, I'm primarily using newspaper accounts. So I'm having, so it's a different set of, I mean, it, you know, it's, it's like what's getting left out of these memos, what's going on behind the scenes. How can I read, um, you know, the, the kind of the way that racism is operating here between the lines versus like how, how can I piece together, understand a story, um, that's being told or being filtered through reporters and how, how can I then um, try to reconstruct what's going on uh, through their bias? I mean, you know, in both cases, just like, just like for all historians, we're kind of limited by um, whatever like scraps of um, scraps of information or, or the, the people who are constructing the documents that we're using, you know, what they choose to share. But there's definitely something different about trying to make sense of the, of a newspaper account and trying to weigh, you know, what's there and what's not versus a, a policy document, especially um, among people working in a presidential administration. I think you know, because the, the the primary difference too is that the newspapers themselves lend them lend um, 
lend themselves much more to a, a straightforward narrative. Um, whereas the policy documents, you know, there are details provided in the articles um, in the Lemberg archives that are not in the, um, of course, in, in the White House Center files, like what people were wearing and 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 what streets looked like and 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 rich quotes from um, from actors involved that that I think help to create um, a really compelling narrative, but but also then obscure some of the um, the larger kind of socioeconomic factors that might be more might be easier to grasp in a um, you know in a, in, a, in a policy based archive. Right. Right. Um, I want to also uh, just take a moment because it's important, really important the, to make a mention of the the timeline, uh, the 25 page timeline that you include in the back of the book um, that uh, denotes kind of all of the rebellions, just lists, lists all of the rebellions that um, occur in the 60s and early 1970s. Um, do you want to say anything about why you decided to include this? Yeah. So, and, and again, like that, I mean, just like the book itself, I mean, that timeline would not have been possible without Christian's research. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, that, I mean, we worked together to, to clean up some of the data and, you know, and fact check, um, every single one of those 2000 cities, but, um, but, uh, you know, it wouldn't, it would not have been possible without, um, Christian's work to quantify the Lemberg Center archives. I mean, for me, it was really exciting because I got to um, to lay bare my data, and I was really thankful to LiveWrite for allowing me to include it. So, you know, not only is the data there, just showing this completely um, forgotten, hidden, misunderstood chapter in American history and in the Black freedom struggle. But I think, you know, for me, the goal is to is to open up. Uh, new avenues of research and new avenues of research for scholars, but then also within the uh, the cities and towns where rebellions occurred, new discussions to help um, communities better come to terms with police violence and 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 racism um, and exclusionary practices in the past and the way that those inform the future. I mean, I think one of the, the power of the timeline is that it shows, you know, that, that like we're all implicated in this mm -hmm. history. It's not like we can just say, oh, well, that's Minneapolis, that's George Floyd, you know, that's, that's Louisville, Kentucky, that's Breonna Taylor. No, this is all of us. And I bet that, uh, that most readers um, have lived in, at some point, you know, at least one of the cities mentioned mm -hmm. um, in the in the book's timeline. So I, I think it just gives all of us a different a different kind of stake in this history, and and makes clear and really disrupts the you know the the narratives that we tell that police violence is relegated to big cities and big northern cities in particular, um, and mm -hmm. that and and also this narrative that the um, you know, that the, the Southern civil rights movement was completely nonviolent and, um, and, and the Northern one was militant and violent. It also uh, really, you know, I mean, this is again, an argument that I make in the book that I hope comes through in the book, but there's something about 
just when you look at the timeline and you see, you know, that this is occurring from like Oregon to, you know, Arkansas to Alabama to, uh, to Massachusetts and Connecticut. I mean, it's just, it's, it's everywhere and it's part of all of our histories. For sure. Yeah. It's ubiquitous. And, and that definitely comes through. I like the, I like the form. I like the list format. Um, you know, I think we're as scholars, we're so used to just, you know, reading, uh, but this is effective, um, when it's written out like this. Um, so let's talk about the first chapter. The first chapter introduces readers to what you call the cycle of police violence and community responses to the violence of policing, which is further exacerbated by a municipal and federal neglect. Um, can you tell us more about the cycle? Yeah, so this is, I mean, this is a key interpretive frame in the book. And I think um, is is one of the lessons that that we should learn today. I mean, there's a that, that we can take from the book. There's a there's a pattern in in all in, in all of these rebellions, but one that 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 plays out really explicitly in the the era of rebellion or the crucible period of rebellion from uh, you know May 1968, so after the MLK assassination through 1972, and that's that um, as as policing is expanding as a result of these new, you know, these hundreds of millions of dollars or what's, what's equivalent to several billion in today's dollars in federal grants that are hitting these smaller cities and coupled by the strategy of crime war programs, which are completely preemptive. And this is something that I talk about in the first book, that is that they're not, they're not based in response to actual crime, but they're based in response to trying to stop potential crime from potentially happening, potential criminals and potential rioters. I mean, this is even, you know, the, the potential criminal category, mm-hmm. is, you know, is became a legislative category that um, that that lawmakers uh, that, that, that steered lawmakers strategies for the war on crime from the Johnson administration onward. So, you know, here you begin to see the, the kind of policing of ordinary everyday activity, a group of kids uh, playing in a park and and getting arrested, police officers intervening to try to break up a fight among a group of, of teenagers, um, parties in black neighborhoods, and especially at housing projects getting broken up by police. And residents clearly experienced these interventions as, as violent. Um, and responded to this these acts of policing, these acts of police violence, not by saying, oh, you know, thank you for helping to keep our community safer. Thank you for arresting um, a group of, of 12-year-olds for seemingly no reason. They responded to these acts of police violence with, with violence. And usually mm-hmm. this involved initially, um, I mean, the vast majority of rebellions during this period initially began with with people throwing rocks and bottles at police. And of course, police were outnumbered um, in these situations. And so when the rock and bottle throwing phase began, they would often retreat and then call for backup. And then more officers would arrive on the scene, um, usually with the the new uh, military grade uh, riot gear and weapons um, funded by the federal government. And as the police retreated, more residents would come out and the police would then, you know, start tear gassing or beating people and residents in turn would tended to respond um, by attacking officers back or sometimes, 
you know, the, the rebellion would um, draw in, you know, more members of the community. If they, if it started out like 10 kids, then it could quickly escalate to 50 or hundreds of people. Um, and depending on the, the, the police response then uh, could then escalate further into burning buildings and institutions and, um, and looting stores and the police would tear gas people, beat people, make mass arrests and pose curfews. And this cycle of police violence would play out um, or could play out for several days. I mean, it didn't, it didn't always have a, you know, some rebellions lasted for a week or weeks. Some lasted for a night or two, some several hours. Um, But the lesson that we draw, that we can draw from this is that police violence precipitates community violence, that it's not the other way around. I mean, the, the, the narrative is that, you know, that, that residents just start attacking police and then police respond. Um, and, you know, when we actually look at how these rebellions play out and the, the kind of this, the, the broad similarities between them, they're always in response to forms of police violence. And, and so that's the kind of, that's the, the literal cycle of rebellion. But then there's also a policy cycle that we're mm-hmm. stuck in because, and this is where the terminology here is really important, because in ignoring the larger socioeconomic root causes of this form of political violence and labeling them riot, riots, labeling them criminal, the, the solution then becomes um, more police. The solution then becomes the very thing that, that residents are protesting in the first place. And so we've been stuck in this um in this policy cycle of the continued and perpetual expansion of the carceral state of policing, surveillance, and prisons, um, which have evolved and became, and we see it playing out, you know, which end up becoming a criminogenic force in itself um, Mm -hmm. in the communities when the solution, um, you know, is and has always been uh, to invest in, institutions beyond the police to to create true public safety. Indeed. And and with that, uh, we see uh, housing projects in both small towns and cities um, and how they become an important site in the book, really a focal point of Black rebellion. So can you tell us more about this space as an archetype and the ways that built environment has historically been a landscape or a backdrop? Of rebellion, right? So you know, housing projects. I mean, especially by the late '60s, you know, are really sites of concentrated poverty and um, concentrated Black poverty. And the you know, by by that time, the conditions within housing projects, although you know, in the post-war period, were kind of. Um, you know, seen as a, a, a really desirable um, home for Black families, many of you know whom even in the you know 1940s didn't have indoor plumbing, um, didn't have heat and hot water. It seemed as like a step up, but you know the the kind of combination of um, neglect on the part of housing authorities, coupled by uh, continued uh, socioeconomic inequalities and racial discrimination you know, really turned housing projects into a, um, a hotbed of, of, of poverty and a space that could be um, both easily policed, but also conducive to collective violence. Mm-hmm. Um, 
you know, one of the things, and this is kind of flashing forward, but, um, you know, do I, I've been on a number of ride-alongs with, um, with Los Angeles police officers. And, you know, one of the things that they do on the beat, those, those in South LA is like, they'll just show up to housing projects. You know, they'll just drive up mm-hmm. to housing projects because they know like that is a site. If they can't, if there's not a call, if they can't find someone, that's a site where they know poor black people live again, where there are likely to be potential crimes happening or potential incidents of violence um, happening. And mm-hmm. the, the unique design of housing projects themselves, I mean, the, the, the alleyways, um, mm-hmm. you know, high rise projects like in Chicago, for instance, um, in the Robert Taylor homes in Cabrini Green. I mean, when officers showed up in the courtyard, um, people, snipers, um, could and did, you know, shoot, shoot at officers from their windows saying, you know, we don't want you policing our community. Um, one, mm-hmm. one really interesting story emerged in Stockton, California, um, where I've also done a great, a good deal of research and um, have, have worked with the police department doing ride-alongs and other things there. Um, but <laughs> in, in July, 1968 residents after a, um, a house party in the in the housing project was broken up. Ended up essentially kidnapping um, two police officers in the community gymnasium, leading to several nights of rebellion and the burning of a police car. Um, mm. But but housing projects in particular, I mean, I, I just think are are such have, are such a symbol and a site um, where you know police officers know <laughs> um, that that they they can surely make arrests that they can they can effectively surveil and monitor um groups of of black residents and and they're also i mean especially you know by the by the late 1960s just profound uh symbols of 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 racial inequality and um mm-hmm. and and socioeconomic disparities absolutely um, let's turn next to vigilantes. Um, and you have a chapter that, uh, conceptualizes vigilantes beyond the lone wolf vigilante. Um, and in terms of the individual framework, we think of it in today. Um, you resituate readers in an evolution of white supremacist groupings from the white mobs of the early 20th century who led racial terror and lynchings. Um, and you examine these post-civil rights formations, um, such as white supremacist community organizations that wage war on Black residents while defending and building alliances with police. Um, can you tell us about this and how Black residents responded? Yeah, so I think one, you know, one really important dynamic that's also happening, um, you know, in this kind of civil rights, post-civil rights period is that the police are increasingly, as, as, as American policing expands, police forces are increasingly assuming the previous functions of the white mob. And mm-hmm. white supremacist organizations are also evolving, um, you know, from the, uh, the, the lower class people who are typically associated with, like, clan membership to a more, like, genteel... Um, group that's that's now uh, kind of harboring uh, white supremacist organizations in many towns and not just in the southern states, but um, 
but in the North and the Midwest and the West as well. So, so, you know, white supremacy becomes more entrenched within the kind of political and economic establishment in many cities. And, um, and, and also, you know, as you mentioned, deeply entangled as it has been historically, but deeply entangled with the police and, and in the places where um, this relationship between the kind of white establishment, white supremacist organizations and the pol- and, and law enforcement was particularly acute is where we see the most uh, kind of destructive and dramatic uh, rebellions. So, you know, one is in um, York, Pennsylvania in, uh, mm-hmm. In 1969, which which is you know arguably the most destructive um, uh, rebellion of of the era, given the size of the community, where essentially the police department um, handed out bullets to various uh, white power gangs in the city who terrorized the black community of York um, for for two weeks, and the city essentially broke out into um, into severe racial conflict, um, uh, during, during that, that summer. And then the longest, uh, rebellion itself happened in, uh, a small town called Cairo, Illinois at the southernmost tip of, um, of the state, which, you know, might as well in many ways, even though, you know, it's, 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 it's a city in Illinois, but it might as well have been the South and essentially, um, the, you know, black residents in the town were just, were, there are about 3,000 uh, black residents in a town that was just over 6,000 people. And essentially, um, you know, the, the white power structure was deeply implicated in, in uh, the white vigilante groups and deputized thousands of white men to uh, inflict various acts of uh, mm-hmm. Of, of terror and horror, frankly, in the lives of, of Black residents from um, essentially March 1969, when a group of white men began um, shooting into the um, all-Black Pyramid Courts housing project uh, from the Mississippi levee um, through 1972. And, um, and Black residents both fought back through the conventional um, Kind of direct action channels by um, by boycotting the the white stores in in Cairo. I mean, black residents there were essentially locked out of of political power. Um, they you know most the vast majority were unemployed. They could not um, find consistent work. There was no political representation, um, and the residents began black residents in Cairo began to organize and say we're not going to continue to patronize these white stores so that people that, you know, these vigilantes can buy bullets to shoot at us. So they launched a boycott and they also armed themselves in, in, in self-defense and began to fight back because I mean, what other options do you have when you have no political resource mm-hmm. recourse whatsoever? And, you know, these white vigilantes completely supported by, you know, the political and economic institutions of the city are, literally, you know, shooting into your apartments every night and you have absolutely no protection. And the Cairo story is one that weaves, um, you know, through many chapters of the book and I think is exceptional in many ways because of the violence. Um, but also, you know, is, is a warning to all of us about the, <laughs> the, the, the ways in which, you know, racism, that, that white supremacy 
or that white supremacists, um, the lengths that white supremacists will go to preserve their power and, mm-hmm. um, and, and kind of the, the, the way that racism works in America, because rather than give, give any concessions to the black residents of Cairo, um, mm-hmm. the, the, the white establishment essentially decided to let the political and economic infrastructure of the town completely collapse. I mean, the boycott was successful in closing, um, you know, 17 of the white owned businesses in, in the, in Cairo's downtown and anyone and everyone who could, uh, who had the means to leave Cairo did. Um, and mm-hmm. the, town, the economy of the, t- of the town tanked as a result. And so, you know, it's really, it's a warning to all of us that, you know, that, what happens when white supremacy trumps everybody else's well, well-being. Um, mm-hmm. Right. And I hope that we can talk more about the kind of like the death of, of Caro um, uh, a little bit later. Um, in, uh, well, in your chapter about snipers, you kind of uh, track the state's paranoia and frenzy about the murderous black sniper and you show how it becomes a justification for building up the police weaponry of on the eve of the Safe Streets Act of 1968. And what this does is that it effectively distorts the reasons behind Black rebellions, um, and it projects this narrative that casts the police as victims. So I wanted to know um, more about how you saw the convergence of local and national media and political campaigns in accelerating these myths about the snipers, about the projects, and about community violence. Um, and I'm thinking like specifically to what you said earlier as well, uh, kind of like when you were in the actual archive itself and you're dealing with some of these newspapers, um, in what ways are these stories told or cast? So this actually, I mean, you know, inadvertently picks up on what I was just talking about, about Cairo, because in the Lemberg archive, um, you know, the way that the press or the newspaper clippings that the researchers collected, because there were others that I later discovered, but reported on Cairo was that, you know, that these that these group, these basically group of black snipers were indiscriminately shooting at white people in the town. Um, mm-hmm. And and so the, the the kind of myth of the sniper becomes this way to explain uh, and pathologize rebellion as something that was, you know, I mean, and, and in many ways that the sniper, the way the sniper was discussed kind of prefigures, um, you know, the ways in which other tropes like the super predator is discussed, you know, somebody without you know, any kind of morals, a, a complete psychopath that's just indiscriminately shooting at white people um, and the police. And we know that, you know, sniping itself, you know, it began to be reported as a phenomenon during the Newark and Detroit rebellions of 67, but we know that it was overreported and fabricated and actually, you know, was, was used to explain many of the, the deaths of civilians during rebellions at the hands of the police and the national guard. Um, mm. So, so it becomes a way to play up, uh, play up black pathology or black pathology, pathological violence and downplay the 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 role of the um of, of state sanctioned violence and the prevalence of state sanctioned violence and police terror as you um as you said i really like that that framing um and it also yeah I, sorry i completely lost my train of thought there oh yeah no it's just on the on the ways that some of these events are portrayed and 
in in the media, um, just feeding the pathology. Yeah, it becomes it becomes the idea of the sniper becomes a real, you know, as I write in the book, like the boogeyman of of mm-hmm. white imagination, and um, and is also you know very much tied into um, the black soldiers returning from Vietnam. I mean, I think, you know, this, yeah. the, the, the connection there between the violence in Vietnam and the violence at home um, is very strong and is, is a kind of trope that, you know, this idea of the sniper would not necessarily be, or has not been, right, part of, um, part of, of the way that we talk about um, so-called riots. Um, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Well, let's um, let's move next to the chapter called the the poisoned tree. This chapter challenges the bad apples analogy, which is often used to say that issues with policing are exceptional rather than systemic. Um, and what we see in this chapter, and actually through, is a theme throughout all of the chapters, which is, you know, the, uh, all of these black communities are. Uh, being terrorized by police, um, and they're exhausting all options available to them. They're engaging in boycott, nonviolent protests, civil council advocacy, and so on. But none of these efforts prevented um, the episodic police murder of Black people, um, which caused the communities to continue rebelling. This is the cycle. Um, So can you talk to us about one of the overarching themes of this book, which is the necessity of violence to uproot the system? Yeah, so this is, um, you know, I think this is a, a kind of key thing that uh, that I think that the archive and, and that the book really helps us understand. And that's, of course, the the shift between or the shift from um, nonviolent direct action protests within the mainstream civil rights movement to the politics of self-defense after Martin Luther King Jr.'s uh, assassination as being the, the kind of guiding principle of um, of black protests. And I think especially for young people, um, you know, what this history shows is that rebellion was the most widely adopted form of protest. And, mm-hmm. you know, the, the kind of generational transition here is really important because, you know, young people had watched uh, the civil rights movement unfold with great promise. And, you know, by the end of the 1960s, for many, I think, especially for for poor, for poor black people, conditions had changed little, and despite the commitment to nonviolence, um, you know, that the changes did not come, and 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 many communities felt they had no other recourse but to turn to violent tactics in order to um, to make a change. I mean, in, in in nearly every city where rebellions occurred, it's not like this was the first form of protest. So rebellions, again, came after, um, you know, nonviolent direct action demonstrations. They came after lawsuits. They came after petitions. They came after communities calling for the firing of police officers who were particularly brutal with no implementation. And in many cases, rebellions did open up new conversations and sometimes reforms, limited reforms that didn't go far enough, but reforms within communities to respond to or acknowledge the pervasiveness of racial discrimination. And so, you know, there is, um, you know, I, I urge readers to understand the ways in which both nonviolent and violent 
forms of protest have been central to the Black freedom struggle. I mean, this is something that Martin Luther King Jr. himself recognized that like part mm-hmm. of the success of his branch of protest was, you know, rested on the course of power of violent protests should nonviolent demands not be met. And we saw, you know, this, this, the interplay between violent and nonviolent protests um, unfolding last summer during the, during the, mm-hmm. the 2020 protests um, after the murder of George Floyd, where, you know, I mean, the Black Lives Matter movement and, and demonstrations against police brutality have of course been gaining momentum since the killing of Michael Brown in Ferguson in 2014, but not at the scale that we saw in the summer of 2020 and not, and they didn't, um, they didn't result in the kind of national discussion. I mean, systemic racism became a buzzword um, and, you know, corporations like Walmart (laughs) and CVS are, you know, removing the anti-theft cases from black beauty products. I mean, it began a whole new set of conversations. And, you know, you wonder if absent the series of fires across the United States last summer, although let me just also stress the vast, vast majority of the protests were completely nonviolent, but absent that, the, 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 those moments of violence and looting, um, if, if these incidents would have galvanized the nation in the way that they did and set off the kinds of conversations that they did. I mean, of course, is also occurring in the context of lockdowns and a global pandemic, but that's a different, that's a different um, part of the story. So, you know, these forms of protests have always been entwined. And I think Mm -hmm. rather than trying to ignore or downplay um, the, the kind of role of violent rebellion in the black freedom struggle, um, it's something that we must uh, begin to, to fully contend with. And, and, and also Mm -hmm. the, uh, with the um, with the conditions that that as as you mentioned you know as you frame the question that that make people feel like they have no they have exhausted all options and have no choice but to take to violent tactics. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wholeheartedly agree that we need to start investigating this more as scholars. Um, so the schools, I love that you included the schools in this book. Um, they are another site of organizing against conditions of disinvestment and neglect. Um, and in the schools, you reveal a linkage between school administrators and the police. Anytime the students organize against conditions of schooling or even conditions in their neighborhoods, they face this executive arm of the state. Um, and this leads to police murders of innocent students like Willie Ernest Grimes. Um, Can you tell us more about the significance of schools, student rebellions, and the policing of progressive action? Yeah. So, I mean, I think, you know, again, I mean, the the, the prevalence of rebellion in schools, which is, of course, where most young people spend the majority of their days, you know, just underscores the extent to which rebellion in particular was really... um, was, was, was really kind of guided by this rising generation of young people. And, um, you know, the, the schools were uh, a hotbed of, of these kinds of activities in part because of the new uh, role that police are taking within schools, but also in part because of the ways in which um, young people had been politicized by the Black Power movement and the kind of the rising militancy in many black communities and began to demand to use the kind of the scripts of um, 
of prominent Black power organizations like the Black Panthers, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, and um, and asserting the the you know demands to include Black studies courses and to hire more Black teachers. And instead of again, I mean, this is like a mini, this is like a variant of the cycle within schools. Instead mm-hmm. of just responding, mm-hmm. saying to the kids, "Okay, like let's let's you know, you guys are demonstrating for this. You're holding a sit-in at school. You're you're ha- you know, you've got signs. You have a peaceful protest going on. Let's sit down and talk, and let's think about how we can um, implement a Black Studies curriculum. Let's think about how we can hire more Black teachers." school administrators uh, tended to respond with police and which like set this like emotion when you respond with police and police start arresting kids or peacefully protesting for black studies curriculum, then, you know, the other kids are going to start throwing rocks and then more police come in. And so, um, and, you know, in, in, in a number of the incidents that I, that I discussed in the book, I mean, these rebellions end up in the, um, the, the, the shooting death of black students by police officers. Um, mm-hmm. so, you know, schools, schools then and now are, have been a really important site of rebellion, but the other, you know, I, I also encourage us to think about, you know, this moment too, as being the, the kind of origins of the school to prison pipeline that I discussed today and the increased reliance on police within mm-hmm. public schools to resolve matters that, um, that, that, that would be much better suited and much more safely suited, uh, to be handled by school administrators um, and 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 other authorities, not uniformed officers with guns and billy clubs. Mm-hmm. Right, exactly. Um, and um, in the wake of many of these rebellions, uh, you expose the state and local commissions that were tasked with investigating them as ineffective. Um, after proposing soft solutions that are rooted in these liberal and conservative pathologies about Black people and Black communities, um, all the while presenting the police as these infallible, um, as these infallible actors, um, and this is um, another kind of, I guess, pillar that we read about when we're thinking, when we see, when we read about the death of Ky- of Cairo. Um, and so I wonder if you could speak a little bit more about that, the commissions, um, and what re- what you want readers to take away um, from those type of investigative, uh, I guess, committees. Yeah. So, the, I mean, the most famous of which, of course, is the National Advisory Commission on Civil Disorders or the Kerner Commission that Johnson called during the, uh, the Detroit Rebellion in 67. And, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, they, are, of course, also fo- follow this kind of pattern where, you know, from the Kerner Commission on down, following rebellion, a group of, uh, you know, a liberal commission would come in and investigate the causes and like the, the Kerner commission, um, you know, identified the structural factors, that lack of um, housing, uh, educational opportunities, jobs um, in these communities that were the root causes of rebellion. And, and yet the, you know, at the, the, the end result is always, always ends up being the recommendations around police reform Um so, you know, I, part of part of the emphasis here is on the kind of limits uh, of liberal social policy, the ways in which the commissions themselves, including the Kerner Commission, um, pathologize black rebellion, but also the the kind of missed opportunity where 
you know, here, here were moments where all of the, or not all, but many of the um, socioeconomic root causes were identified. Um, Mm -hmm. And, and yet, uh, you know, these root causes were not addressed consistently across, you know, right. nationally by the, you know, by the Kerner Commission, but also, um, you know, across mm-hmm. the, 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 the cities where rebellions occurred. So, you know, this, this shows us that like, there, it's, it's just another missed opportunity and also, you know, emphasizes the ways in which alternatives beyond the police and surveillance and the expansion of the prison system were consistently presented to mm. policymakers at all levels of government. And yet, you know, the response to this political protest is always, you know, policing is always better. Policing is always um, the reform of the police department is always a, a symbolic community relations unit is always calls for better training. I mean, it's the same thing that we are still seeing today. And so part of this history of these commissions just underscores that we, must move beyond police reform, that police reform is not going to be enough to prevent police killings or rebellions or, you know, the fundamental inequalities that structure American society in the future. Um, And, you know, the last thing we need is another commission to Mm -hmm. investigate what happened. I mean, I think, you know, at this point, um, these types of commissions are, are just stalling tactics because by the time, you know, recommendations are produced, it's sometime later and it's easy for authorities to ignore them or not act, but they're, but they're there symbolically as a way to appear as if action was taken. Right. Yeah. There's stalling tactics that come at a tremendous cost and um, yeah. And they shut down alternate kind of like ideas, alternate ideas don't have breathing room. Um. So let's talk about the second half of the book, which moves us more towards um, the late 1970s, 1980s, 1990s, 2000s. Um, And this part um, looks at three major Black rebellions in American history. Um, Miami, 1979, surrounding the police murder of Arthur McDuffie, um, LA-92, the police beating of of Rodney King, um, and the gang proposal to rebuild the city and uh, 2001, Cincinnati. So can you tell us about how some of the origins that you establish in the first half of the book reveal themselves as legacies in the second half? Mm-hmm. So there's one, so, you know, I, I think for, for what I, I think this, this is like part of the question, you know, rebellion begins to decline um, in, you know, in the mid seventies. And I think part of this has to do with you know, expanded political representation uh, for for Black people, you know, again, whereas in the late 60s mm-hmm. and early 70s, um, people didn't see themselves in government. And by, you know, like 1971, the Congressional Black Caucus forms as a result of, you know, the th- this younger generation now being a voting age and the voter registration drives the civil rights movement, we get the, the you know, the largest push in Black representation at all levels of government um, since Reconstruction. So I think that helped. Um, I also think that, you know, that mass incarceration, the rise of mass incarceration itself, of course, by the mid-1970s, the prison population has has transitioned from being majority white to being majority Black and brown for the first time in U.S. history. And just the, um, the, 
you know, general, the, the stakes of rebellion and getting arrests and all of the draconian sentencing provisions that are being enacted at the, the at, again, at all levels, um, um, you know, make the stakes of rebellion itself um, even higher. And, you know, the, the young people who uh, had previously steered rebellion are increasingly finding themselves um, locked up. So I think right. that's part of it. And, and that, you know, the policing of ordinary and everyday activity um, that was, you know, contested um, so forcefully in the late 60s and early 70s had become bitterly accepted as just part of, 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 of everyday life in, in, in targeted low-income communities of color. And so beginning with Miami in 1980 and for the remainder of the 20th century and today, you know, rebellion begins to occur in response to exceptional incidents of police violence or miscarriages of justice. So, you know, Miami in 80 and, and LA in 1992 are not in response to, uh, you know, the, the, the killing of, um, of Arthur McDuffie itself or the, um, the beating of Rodney King, the first viral video, but the acquittal of the groups of officers, um, for those acts of police violence, the perceived miscarriage of justice. And of course, mm -hmm. these rebellions are not just about that incident, but about, and you know, this is discussed this in the book, but about a series of injustices and 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 forms of police violence experienced in the everyday over time that somehow just kind of coalesce through um through a moment. I mean, we similar to what we saw um with 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 George Floyd in uh, in in 2020, um, and Cincinnati, you know, also in 2001, which I see as really a, a transition from the the kind of um, late 20th century rebellions to what we began to witness in Ferguson in the 21st century. But um, mm -hmm. what happened in you know after um, a 20 year old black man named Timothy Thomas was killed by a Cincinnati police officer, and Thomas was the 15th. Uh, black man to be killed by the Cincinnati Police Department in a five-year period, and you know the lack of accountability for his um, his his egregious and blatant murder, blatantly unjust murder, um, tragic murder, just you know brought the community uh, to a tipping point. Mm -hmm. um, well, I want to ask you about the conclusion. Um, it brings us to the murder, the police murder of George Floyd last summer and the 2020 uprising against policing in which the movement for Black Lives and Black Lives Matter activists advanced calls for police defunding and abolition over reform. And in your opinion, what is the import and potential efficacy of these solutions? And in this regard, what can we learn from your book about the paths not taken? Yeah, so I mean, I, I really hope that my um, that my book can can help contribute to these discussions. I mean, I think both the books. I mean, one of the things that that my research shows is that you know embracing police and surveillance and incarceration as the policy response to manage um, the material manifestations of poverty and racial inequality as they appear through crime and social harm or violence has been one of the biggest domestic policy failures of the late 20th century. I mean, or maybe even um, of the, in, in the history of the, of the United States. Um, mm -hmm. you know, investing in, in the carceral state at the expense of 
social welfare programs, jobs, educational opportunity, access to decent housing, um, has not worked to keep our most vulnerable communities safe. It has created dynamics where, uh, where police officers and the residents that they are um, charged with patrolling both um, see each other as the enemy, which leaves communities um, and officers themselves less safe. Um, and we know that, you know, alternatives to policing are much more effective at fostering public safety and, and, uh, and are much cheaper than, um, than locking somebody up and throwing and warehousing them in, um, in prison. So I think, you know, this summer, these failed policies and the, the just undemocratic, um, and racist undertones through which they, um, unfold on the ground and through which they are, uh, they, they've been developed is just, has been, is just intolerable. I think especially for, again, a rising generation of young people who want to see a different kind of governance, um, who mm-hmm. want, who want U.S. institutions to govern according to the principle of equality rather than exclusion, um, and, and, and inequality and who are saying, you know, this is like essentially what defund is about. And it's what the Kerner commission was advocating for. Like we need a different set of investments you know, the, the kind of continued reliance on police hasn't worked. Um, and I think, you know, my work in part, um, helps to underscore that and helps draw our attention to, you know, the fact that this form of, of violent protest as it emerges is not something that should be seen or treated as criminal, but something that needs to be seriously contended with and will help draw us to, more effective and more equitable, equitable solutions. And, you know, in transforming socioeconomic conditions. Yeah, for sure. Said, said really well. Um, I couldn't agree more. Um, Would you, I have one more question for you before we go. Um, Would you like to share with our listeners what you are working on now or highlight any projects or organizations that you're working with today? So I, let me, I, I guess I'll, I'll try to be really brief and answer both. I mean, let me j- first say that I think in, in, in thinking about alternatives to public safety, um, you know, any approach needs to be community-based. I think, you know, one thing that's, that's becoming increasingly clear and that like the most innovative public safety measures that are being implemented across the country, especially in low-income communities of color are entirely, um, uh, you know, based within the community. They don't involve police. They involve alternatives to police. They involve mutual aid societies. They involve um, support groups for for crime survivors. They involve um, different kinds of block watches where, you know, neighborhoods are and, and neighbors are keeping themselves um, safe and protecting each other rather than relying on the police to do so, rather than relying on an outside officer with the gun. I'm thinking about um, groups like the Oakland Power Projects, which um, stems out of the abolitionist organization Critical Resistance. I'm really inspired by the work of Advanced Peace, um, which is rapidly expanding, but um, originally based in Richmond, California, and founded by Devon Bogan, which which you know basically um, empowers people who have previously been incarcerated or involved in um, in 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 violent activity in their communities 
to um, to work directly with young people who are vulnerable to getting shot or shooting others. Um, and, you know, especially when it comes to gun violence, we know that police um, often exacerbate gun violence. And this is a problem in our communities that um, I think can and should be best handled by community members themselves, especially community members who have experienced, um, you know, gun violence firsthand. Um, and, and I guess that kind of brings me to what I'm working on now, which is, um, you know, this book, I think, um, helps lay the groundwork to get to the larger question of trying to historicize um, group violence in the, in the late 20th century, especially in low-income communities of color. And, you know, I think the big question is, you know, how did this form of collective violence in Black communities that was once expressed against external forces that was once against once expressed against the police beginning in the mid 1970s turn internal um you know turn into a collective violence that took the form of um so-called gang warfare where we see things like drive-by shootings um emerge mm. and the flourishing of the underground economy and i think these questions about crime and violence are just so vital for historians to take up historians have not really um, examined these issues. We haven't treated things like drive-by shootings as a you know distinct historical phenomenon. They've been treated in the existing literature as pathological. Um, and so, you know, America on Fire and my first book too are, you know, my first book in laying out the kind of process of criminalization, America on Fire, and laying out the um the 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 kind of collective external violence against state forces, then you know, allows us to properly or allows me to properly begin to historicize then, um, you know, what happened when that um, and the process through which that collective external violence turned internal. Mm-hmm. I mean, that sounds like a most necessary um, and important project. Um, so thank you for sharing that with us. And I hope that we can get you back on the show to talk about it when when the time is right. Um, <laughs> I would love to. But for now... Yeah. For now, Dr. Hinton, I want to thank you for um, being on the show today and for speaking with us about America on Fire, the untold history of police violence and Black rebellions since the 1960s. Thank you so much, Amanda. It was great talking to you. And I appreciate you engaging my work so deeply. My pleasure.